0: Coming up, a message from the pulpit of Bethel Primitive Baptist Church in Calabash, North Carolina, by Elder Michael Goins. For information about Bethel Church, please visit our website at Bethelpbc.us. This morning I want to look at two texts of Scripture, the first in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, the second in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 17 and 18 as we... Speak on the subject, we believe the gospel saves the saved. The Apostle Paul says, So as much as in me is, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Paul says the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. Now turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. That was Romans 1, now 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 17 and 18. The same apostle says, For Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. Both passages, you'll notice, speak of the gospel, and both tell us that the gospel is the power of God and that it exercises a saving influence And the question is, whom does it save? And Paul says in that 1 Corinthians passage, the gospel saves the saved. To us who are saved, it is the power of God. It's not the power of God to those that perish. It is foolishness to them, but to the saved, that is to those who've already been born again, the gospel is the power of God. With this sermon, we come to the final topic in our mini-series on the things most surely believed among us. This has been an intramural kind of study, that is, it's designed primarily for those of us who are Primitive Baptists to help us remember what we believe and why we believe it. In the course of this series, I've talked about the new birth. We believe in the new birth. We've talked about the everlasting covenant. We've talked about the finished work of Christ, and today we talk about the purpose of the gospel. And in these four heads, the new birth, the everlasting covenant, the finished work of Christ, and the purpose or utility of the gospel, we have a summary, if you please, of the core things that we believe here at Bethel Primitive Baptist Church. Now, perhaps you wonder if I could just deal with a couple of housekeeping issues before we get to the meat of the subject. Perhaps you wonder, what is my motive as a pastor in addressing the basics of our faith? Why are we going through basic training here at Bethel Church again? Why are we revisiting some of these fundamentals? And I suggest that in focusing on what we believe, my motive has not been to disparage our Christian friends in other traditions. I don't want to throw shade on anyone that disagrees with us in the various Christian denominations around us. Neither is my motive to foster a sense of pride and exclusivity and say, we've got it and no one else does. As if we are the people, as Job said, and wisdom will die with us. No, that's not my motive at all. But I'm convinced that it's important for us to be firmly established with the reasons that we do things as we do. I think you've likely figured out that we're a bit different as Primitive Baptists from the majority of other Christian groups, and there's an important reason for that. It's not that we desire to be eccentric or aloof or antisocial, but it's due to our conviction that doctrine matters and that fine distinction is the essence of sound theology. I think it's necessary to reinforce the basics of our faith and the justification for it, lest our people are confused when they encounter the popular ideas of other Christians. That's my motive in addressing these fundamental topics. Secondly, I want to say there's a reason that we began this particular series by looking at how a person is born again. Now, if you've heard Primitive Baptists preach for long, you know that it is not uncommon for them to start before the foundation of the world. And we dealt with that, the everlasting covenant, God's plans to save a people before the world began, but we dealt with that secondly, and we addressed the new birth, being born again, the doctrine of regeneration first. And the reason I did that is because that topic is the theater, if you please, where most of us will encounter a difference of opinion as we interact with our Christian friends. We believe that the new birth is the sovereign work of the Holy Spirit without human agency but it's at this point that the majority of our religious friends believe that a person must hear and believe the gospel and make a decision for Christ in order to be born again. So we believe that God does it directly but Our friends believe as as a rule that the preacher is an instrument that God uses to help populate heaven, and that point of distinction is why today in this message on the purpose of the gospel, we come full circle in the attempt to explain our conviction that the gospel is designed for God's children, for those who've already been born again, not for the unregenerate world at large as the means by which they can become children of God. Now, let's look at the two texts that I mentioned today. Romans 1.16 and 1 Corinthians 1.18 both affirm that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. But that passage in 1 Corinthians 1.18 affirms that the individual who is saved by it is one that has already been saved for heaven. Listen to it again. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness but unto us which are saved it is the power of God notice the two classes of people in that text you have those that perish that is those that will finally be judged those that are spiritually dead in trespasses and in sins those that perish and then you have those who've been rescued from that perishing state now we know don't we That every human being by nature is in that first category. We're all Adam multiplied. And we're born into this world under condemnation for our sins. And left in that condition, we would all spend eternity estranged from God under his judgment. But you see, some have been rescued out of that, the word saved in the Bible is an important word, and it's important that you understand that that word is used in different ways. Now, we use the word saved in different ways, don't we? Perhaps you've had a near miss on the highway and you say, the Lord saved me. Now, you're not talking about salvation in the ultimate sense, that he saved me from hell. You're saying he saved me from injury and potential death in that car wreck. He saved me. When Peter was walking on the water and he began to sink and he cried out to Jesus, Lord, save or I perish. Is he thinking in ultimate categories? Is he worried about going to hell when he dies? (laughs) No, he wants to be saved from drowning, right? And common sense is a good help when it comes to interpreting scripture. Now, the fact is many in the religious world today, every time they read the word saved in the Bible, they automatically think that it's talking about salvation from hell to heaven but there are different kinds of salvation and in the scriptures the concept of salvation is a picture word suggesting the thought of being rescued from danger rescued from danger what was peter's danger on the sea of galilee the danger of drowning the danger of physical death but he was rescued from that and the same is true dear friends for us Here's what we believe here at Bethel Church. Jesus Christ is the only Savior of his people in the ultimate sense. Jesus saved everyone that was given to him by the Father before time began. He saved them at the cross, and the Holy Spirit comes and applies that to their hearts when they are born again. But there are deliverances or salvations in time in this present life that we need on an ongoing basis. And my beloved, the gospel is God's powerful resource for delivering his children as they live in this world. It saves the saved. To those that perish, the gospel is just foolishness. It's absurd to them. They are perplexed why we would be interested in being at church on Sunday morning, listening to a man pontificate for 45 minutes. On someone that lived 2,000 years ago and on a God that we cannot see in a world that we've never personally visited. They say that's foolishness. But you know, there's something in this message that to the heaven-born soul is powerful. There's something in the message of the gospel. Now what I'm doing this morning is not so much preaching the gospel, I'm preaching about the gospel. I'm telling you what it does. I'm talking about the mechanics of it. But I love to preach the gospel. And this is coming up on the month of December. And we have even more impetus to think about God manifesting Himself in the flesh, coming to this earth, taking our sins upon Himself, living a perfect life, going to the cross with our sins imputed to Him, and Jesus dying in the stead of His people and accomplishing salvation. That message is good news. That's the gospel message, right? That Jesus is God, He visited this earth and he took our sins upon him and won the victory for all of his children over sin, Satan, death, hell, and the grave. Jesus Christ is our conquering hero. I love to brag on Jesus. I love to tell the story of Jesus and his love. But I think it's also important for us to know that the gospel does not have any effect on those who have not been born again. The gospel doesn't save the unbeliever, it saves the believer. It is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. And you show me a believer, I'll show you somebody who's already been born again. For only a child of God who has spiritual life that God has worked in their hearts has the capacity to embrace the good news. Other than that, he's repelled by it. It's foolishness to him. Now, the reason I stress this is because I don't want us to become confused because you would probably agree we're in the minority when it comes to this view on the purpose of the gospel. It doesn't matter what brand you want to talk about of Christian people, and again, no disparagement upon any of them intended. But everyone believes that the church is the means or the instrument that the word or the sacrament is the instrument by which a person becomes a child of God. I do believe that the gospel is the means for living the Christian life. I do believe the church has a role to play in helping people follow Jesus. But so far as becoming one of God's children, so far as coming into God's family, my beloved, God does that directly and immediately. That is without the use of means or media. And that's why our people have been called Anti-means Baptists, before which I don't like that label. I really don't. I, I do believe in means for discipleship, but not for sonship. You know there's a distinction, don't you, between becoming a child of God and being a follower of Jesus. Only those who are God's children can follow Jesus. But I'll tell you, there's a distinction between relationship and fellowship, between sonship and discipleship. And that is the fine distinction that is the essence of sound theology that we need to understand this morning. Now, I want us this morning to distinguish between the popular view that is known as decisional regeneration or gospel regeneration and sovereign regeneration by the direct and immediate work of the Holy Spirit of God. So we're going to address the subject first negatively this morning by talking about the problems with the gospel regeneration view, then we'll come back and talk about it positively and lay out a biblical case for how the gospel is the power of God to save the child of God. Let's start by defining our terms. What is the gospel? I can get in the pulpit and deliver a sermon on husbands and wives, on a Christian home, on rearing godly children, talk about what the Bible has to say about money and financial matters, Talk about prayer, talk about treating others with respect, loving our neighbor as ourselves. We could talk about all of those things, but they are not necessarily the gospel message. That's all the word of God. But the gospel is a specific message. It means good news, right? The word gospel means good news. And I'll tell you, I love to hear some good news because I get a lot of bad news from this world. It doesn't matter what channel you turn on, you're going to get um, news about murders and tragedies and thefts and deception and all sorts of heartache that's going on in this world. But you know, the gospel in the midst of all the bad news of this world is good news. But to whom is it good news? It's good news only to those who've been previously born of the Spirit of God. And if it means something to you, If hearing the name of Jesus and being reminded about what he did for us brings joy and peace to your soul, dear friends, that's an evidence that you've already been born again. If you're a believer, that belief is not the cause of your regeneration. It's the effect of the divine work of grace in your soul. So what is the gospel? It's good news concerning the person and the work of Jesus. The person of Jesus is his identity. Who was he? That's the person of Jesus. The work of Jesus has to do with what did he do? And the good news focuses on Christ as its theme, who he was and what he did, the person and the work of Jesus. Paul says, 1 Corinthians one twenty-three a we preach Christ crucified. Notice the person of Christ, what he did, crucified. 1 Corinthians 2.2, he says, I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ, there's his person, and him crucified, there's his work. And Paul defines the gospel in specific terms in 1 Corinthians 15 verses 1 and 2 when he says, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel. Now notice the gospel is not an offer. And this is an important distinction. The gospel is not a well-meant offer of salvation, that God is throwing it out there saying, whosoever will, you come take it. Now there is a sense in which the Lord says whosoever will, but that's to those who've already been given spiritual life. But the gospel's not a well-meant offer. In the Bible, it's called a declaration. It's a proclamation. The gospel not an offer. It's a declaration. It's not a proposition. It's a proclamation. Now, when a dignitary issues a proclamation, he's not saying if you will cooperate with it, then it'll come to pass. But he's simply proclaiming a fact. And that's what the good news is. It is a declaration about a fact, an objective reality that has already taken place. And this gospel, Paul says in our text, is God's means of saving or delivering the regenerate child of God. How does it deliver us? It delivers from ignorance, from false teaching. This message will deliver you from deception in this world. And there's a good bit of that that we encounter. It'll deliver us from legalism. That's a bondage. Peter says it's a heavy yoke upon our neck that we're not able to bear. The legalistic idea that you have to save yourself by being good. Which one of you could possibly live up to that standard? I couldn't. And the good news is that the Lord did for you what you couldn't do for yourself. It delivers us from ungodly behavior and sinful attitudes. Do you need help in that area? Anybody here ever have any sinful attitudes? I I sure struggle with my old nature. And the gospel helps me to remember what the Lord's done for me and how I should live in response to his grace. And the gospel delivers us from discouragement and hopelessness and despair. I've seen it at funerals. I've seen families march in, ready to lay to rest the dearest on earth to them. And the light had gone out of their eyes. They had lost all strength and will to continue. It was a tragedy. Their grief was palpable. And then as the minister was blessed to tell what God planned before time, what Jesus accomplished at the cross, and what the Holy Spirit has done for the unworthy. You see, this is all God's work, and we didn't do anything to merit it or to deserve it. Grace is the unmerited favor of God bestowed upon the undeserving, and in fact, the hell-deserving recipient. And as the preacher was blessed to tell about the home that Jesus has built for us by his sovereign grace that is awaiting every heir of promise, and we will all be together again, never to part or to bid farewell again, my beloved, I've seen that family find hope in the message. And they marched out still, no doubt, brokenhearted, but yet with new resolve, new hope, new reason to keep going because their thinking had been lifted above the tragedy of the moment to see that their loved one had not ceased to exist, but simply had passed into that upper and better world and that one day they would be reunited with them because of God's amazing grace. My beloved, the gospel has the power to deliver the discouraged. And it's delivered me many a time. Has it ever delivered you? Has it delivered you from hopelessness? Has the gospel ever lifted you from the pit of despair and you found reason to keep going in the good news of Jesus Christ and Him crucified? Indeed, we should rejoice in the truth of Romans 1.16. The gospel is the power of God. It's a powerful message. But we must not assign to this verse a meaning that contradicts 1 Corinthians 1.18. The gospel is not the power of God unto salvation to them that perish or the unregenerate. No, it's foolishness to him. It's only the power of God unto salvation to the individual who has already been saved. Now in the moments remaining today, let's speak negatively. Let's first analyze the problem and show the errors of the gospel means position. And I want to give you four reasons. We'll probably only get to a couple of them this morning that the gospel means position, the gospel regeneration view is in error. And first of all, I would say this morning that decisional regeneration, the idea that you have to hear the gospel and respond to it in order to go to heaven, does not adequately satisfy the tension between the doctrine of total depravity and the act of believing. Listen, if you will, to the next chapter in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 14. The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Now that language is reminiscent of what we just read in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Foolishness. The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit. Man in his natural state is not interested in spiritual things. For they're foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. Watch the next verse. But? In contrast, he that is spiritual judgeth all things, yet he himself is judged of no man. The contrast, again, is between two different classes of people. The natural man, man in his native state, apart from grace, and then the person who's been born again. As God has marked him out and changed and transformed his thinking, he says the spiritual man is able to understand But the natural man does not discern or understand spiritual things. He cannot, he says, know them, for they are spiritually discerned. In fact, the gospel is foolishness unto him. What this verse is teaching is that a person has to be born again before they can believe. Regeneration comes before faith. Life comes before action. You can't expect a person who's dead in trespasses and in sins, and the Bible uses that language on purpose. They are as incapacitated to spiritual life as a deceased person is to natural life. By nature, that's where all of us are because of Adam's transgression. We come into this world spiritually dead. We're conceived in sin, as David says in Psalm 51, verse 5. That is, we're talking about the doctrine known as total depravity. And you see, here's the distinction. If a person ever gets a sense of the state of man by nature, he will have to believe salvation's by grace and grace alone. If man will ever be saved at all, it's because people fail to understand the doctrine of total depravity that they say that man can do something to help the Lord out. Or he can do something to accomplish his own eternal salvation. You see, dear friends, the Bible depicts man's state by nature in deplorable terms. Man isn't merely injured or maimed because of the fall of Adam. He's ruined by it. He's devastated by it. The Bible says he's dead in sins. Now, what can a deceased person do to invest in the lives of others or improve his situation? Not a thing. I don't want to be too graphic because people's emotions are involved. But if you went out to the cemetery and you offered a Thanksgiving meal to a loved one that has now gone home to be with the Lord, I dare say they wouldn't say thank you. They wouldn't consume the meal. You know that's true, don't you? Because the deceased can't respond. They're unresponsive to stimulus, to external stimuli. And the fact is man is not simply injured by the fall. The Bible says, as a result of Adam's transgression, Romans 5.12, death came upon all men because all have sinned. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. And in Ephesians 2.1, man by nature is said to be dead and trespasses and in sin. And you hath he quickened. God did a work in your heart. Now, I'm talking to a group of people here today, and probably most everyone here, There is a time in your life where that attitude that didn't care about God, didn't want to please Him, didn't want to honor Him, that you had in your heart was changed. And suddenly you have a desire. Suddenly you have an interest. Why is that the case? Because you have been quickened by God. You have He quickened who were dead in trespasses and in sins. Isn't it wonderful to have tender feelings about Jesus To be touched by the hymns, "'Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus, just to take him at his word." You say, what a precious thought that is. The name of Jesus is melodious in your ears. The good news that God, who's holy and august and majestic, has condescended to your lowest state. He stooped to help the unworthy, and he has favored us and he's been so good to us somebody says god has been with me all my life long but have you always been with him no dear friends there was a time when we weren't with him but you see our lives have taken a different direction isn't it wonderful paul says to the corinthians first corinthians chapter 6 verse 11 such were some of you but now you're justified now you're sanctified by the lord jesus and by the spirit of our god you've been changed I want to ask you, what made the difference in your life from what you were originally and what you are today? Why do you have feelings towards the Lord? Why do you want to learn? Why are you interested in spiritual things? You say, well, I'm not as interested as I would like to be. But you see, there's a desire there. That desire was born by the grace of God. It wasn't resident in your heart or mind by nature. And I'm here to preach the gospel. The good news to tell you why you have that desire. Now, did news ever make the event happen? The news reports the fact, at least technically. You know, that's the way it's supposed to be. News is after the event, and somebody tells you what happened. The newsboy on the street. Now, some of you young folks aren't going to understand what I'm saying, but newspaper boys used to walk up and down the streets of major cities waving a newspaper saying, Extra, extra, read all about it. And somebody would come by and give him a nickel, maybe a quarter, and he would hand them a newspaper and they could see what the news was. Well, the gospel's good news. I'm not helping to make salvation a reality. I'm not helping the Lord populate heaven. I'm just the newsboy standing on the corner saying, extra, extra, read all about it. I want to proclaim, I want to publish what the Lord has done. Really, what a preacher is, he's a publisher. Psalm 68, 11 says, The Lord gave the word, and great was the company of those that published it. But a publisher is one who reports something that's already taken place. And when the Bible speaks of the Good news of the gospel, it calls those who preach it publishers. Listen to Isaiah 52, verse 7. How beautiful upon the mountain are the feet of those that publish. Peace. Now here's the runner, the courier. You see, back in the day before they had email, text message, telephones, telegraphs, teleprimitive Baptist, they carried messages from one city to the other by runners, Or couriers. How beautiful are the feet. Why does it say their feet are beautiful? Because they're running swiftly to bring a message. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of them that publish peace. That proclaim salvation. That saith unto Zion, thy God reigneth. He says that publish the news of salvation. That's what a gospel preacher is. He's a publisher. God gave the word. He's the source of truth. And a great company published it. Just like other Primitive Baptist preachers, I'm part of that company who is trying to tell the old, old story. And all I'm doing is bringing you the news. Now, the news did not affect the event. The event happened yesterday. I'm just here to tell you the war is over. And that is a comforting message. Jesus fought the battle. Jesus won hands down. And here is why that gospel regeneration, the idea that the preacher is the instrument God uses to help populate heaven. This is why I disagree with it, because it doesn't satisfy the tension. There's tension between the doctrine of total depravity, that man can't respond until he's given spiritual life. Man doesn't have spiritual senses. He doesn't have spiritual capacities. And the act of believing... 1 John chapter 5, verse 1 tells us that belief comes after new birth. Listen to this verse. Here's a good verse for you to put in your arsenal and think about when it comes to this sequence of salvation. Regeneration, the new birth, must precede gospel faith. 1 John 5, 1, he says, "...whosoever believeth," present tense, "...that Jesus is the Christ." Now here I am today and I believe Jesus is the Christ. Now he's going to say something about me. The person who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. Now notice he didn't say that the person who believes will be, but he says he already has been born of God. He is born of God. Another verse, John 5, 24, Whoso heareth my words, present tense, Now, notice verb tenses in the Bible. It's very important. You say, Brother Mike, why can't we just all agree and not get so focused on the details? Because fine distinction is the essence of sound theology. Doctrine matters. It matters what you believe about how God saves sinners. Whoso heareth my words and believeth on him that sent me. Both of those verbs, heareth and believeth, are in the present perfect tense. He's saying the person who hears right now and believes right now hath past tense, everlasting life. Now just following the verb tenses and using your brain. Brother Sonny Powell used to say, when education has confused you, sometimes you just have to use your brain. And people will try to confuse you. This world will try to confuse you. But just use the common sense that God gave you. He says the person who hears and believes already has eternal life. Let me say it like this. If I were to tell you the baby that cries is born of its mother, similar sentence construction, would you assume that the child cries in order to be born or that the child that cries already has been born? The baby that cries is born. The person who hears and believes is born of God. Now it doesn't mean the person who just hears the audible sound of a sermon. Anybody could do that, but he means the person who embraces it, who believes it, in whose heart it means something. He that hears my words and believes on him that sent me hath, in the past tense, everlasting life. Your hearing and your belief is an evidence that you've already been born again. What I'm saying is regeneration or the new birth is the root and belief is the fruit. And you can't get the fruit unless you first have the root. Isn't that true in a natural sense? If you didn't have an apple tree, you wouldn't get apples from it. You say, I've got apples. Faith in the Bible is a fruit of the Spirit. It's not the root of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit works in the heart, and faith is born in the lives of His people as a result of the Spirit's presence in the heart you say, Brother Mike, this is so unnecessary. No, my friends, it's very important. And I want our people to know that why we do things the way we do here is because we believe that God is the only one who can save his people from heaven. God the Father planned it. God the Son accomplished it. God the Holy Spirit applies it. Now we're telling you about it in the gospel. And the good news is that the Lord has done it all, even though you didn't deserve it, and he gets all the credit. When I get to heaven, I won't be looking up some evangelist or personal worker or soul winner or pastor that told me I won't give thanks to my parents. Thank you so much for telling me about Jesus to get me here. I passed by a local church some time back and saw the marquee out in front of the church that says, How many people will be in heaven as a result of you? Well, that's a simple question, and it has a simple answer not one. But I'll tell you, there will be a multitude there as a result of Jesus Christ. He's the Savior. He's the only one who can save a person from their sins. But my beloved, I want to tell God's children, as many as I can find, I want to be blessed to sow the seed of the good news so that they can find the freedom and the liberty. Because so many people are worried about their eternal souls and they're worried about their loved ones. I've met people, visited with people through the past 40 years of pastoral ministry, who've said things like this, I hoss and turn on my bed. I worry myself every evening about my children, wondering whether they are saved or lost. Well, I understand a parent's concern for their children, and it's good to pray for them. But My beloved, may I say that it doesn't matter what you or I do, he knows how to do it. And if it's his pleasure to do so, they'll be in heaven with you. I will tell you this, whoever's in heaven, you'll be satisfied when you get there. You see, I don't think I could be satisfied if someone's missing. You'll be satisfied when you get there because Jesus Christ will be there and all the saints of God, the redeemed throng from all ages past, will be together, never to part again. But you know, if your loved one has ever shown any of the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness and temperance, those are evidences that spiritual birth has taken place. And the gospel is simply the good news. So the fact is that faith cannot be both the cause and the effect of life. The Holy Spirit is the cause of salvation. Faith is the effect or evidence of it. What I'm saying this morning is an understanding of total depravity makes immediate regeneration by the Holy Spirit a necessity. For the dead sinner does not have the ability to exercise faith until he has been born again. I would say secondly, One of the reasons I object to gospel regeneration, not only does it not answer the tension between depravity and believing, it doesn't properly satisfy that tension, but gospel regeneration introduces a human element into the work of the Godhead in eternal salvation. Now, we know that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are always in agreement. Isn't that right? He is in one mind and who can turn him. And in the Bible, it's interesting to notice that creation is ascribed to all three divine persons. God created the heavens and the earth, the spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And in the New Testament we're told that the word or Jesus Christ created all things and by him all things were made. So the whole Trinity is credited with the work of creation. In the resurrection, the whole Trinity is credited with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. God raised him from the dead, says the New Testament. Another verse says that he was quickened or given life from the dead by the Holy Spirit. And Jesus in John chapter 10 says, I've laid my life down and I have power to take it up again. I did it. Notice the whole Trinity is credited. The Godhead is given the credit. The same is true in the work of eternal salvation. Do you believe salvation is a cooperative effort? It is in one sense. Now, it's not a cooperative effort between God and you. God did his part, now you have to do yours. No, it is a cooperative effort between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And theologians have a term for this. They call it the economy of the Godhead. It's a term that speaks of the combined operation of the three divine persons. God acting as a divine team. You see it in Galatians 4, verses 4 to 6, when it says, In the fullness of the time, God sent forth His Son. There you've got the Father and the Son. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying, Have a Father. So God sent Christ, and God sends the Holy Spirit. You have the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit working together as a divine team, perfectly choreographed to accomplish eternal life. You see the same thought in 1 Peter 1, verses 1 and 2. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through sanctification of the Holy Spirit, you've got the Father the Spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. You've got the Father, the Spirit, and the Son, the whole trinity involved in your salvation. You see the same thought in Jude, verse 1. Jude, a servant of God and brother of James, to them that are sanctified by God the Father, preserved in Christ Jesus, and called... And I would add by the Holy Spirit, you've got Father, Son, and Spirit working in a combined operation without any disunity in the Godhead. And then Ephesians chapters 1 and 2, you've got the Father choosing and predestinating a people, the Son coming to redeem that people, and in chapter 2, the Holy Spirit regenerating that people, quickening that people, the divine team. Now, to say that the evangelist has to now step in and carry the gospel message to the dead sinner and the sinner has to respond to it before all that god has done will be effective introduces an element of inconsistency into the work of the godhead in salvation you've heard the old saying haven't you a chain is no stronger than what its weakest link what's the weak link in the chain to say god loved a people Christ died for them, the Spirit calls them, but now the sinner has to respond, the preacher has to carry the message to them, and they have to respond believingly and penitently to it. What's the weak link in that chain? Man is. You introduce human agency into the work of eternal salvation, my beloved, then you'd have no certainty. You wouldn't ever know who's going to finally be saved and who's going to finally be lost. You see, what I'm saying is the good news, the gospel is an exclamatory sentence. It is finished if you will do your part. Is that what he said? No, I'm so thankful there's not an if there. It is finished, but some won't cooperate. No, he doesn't. is finished exclamation point. But what the idea of gospel regeneration does is it turns an exclamation point of the finished work of Christ into a question mark the addition of the human dimension to this equation makes the outcome uncertain. What if a sinner heard the gospel and refused to cooperate? Does that ever happen? I'm telling you it does. Romans chapter 10 says, what if some do not believe? Shall their unbelief make the faith of God, the faithfulness of God without a faith? Does man's unfaithfulness, his unbelief discredit And trump, does it overcome God's faithfulness? No, my friends, I'm telling you that God will have all that he intends to have. Now, our unbelief will affect whether we enjoy the benefits of this message while we live in this world, but it won't change the final outcome. What I've been preaching this morning is the idea that the gospel is designed to deliver God's born-again children. It's the power of God to save them, to save the saved. One last verse, Acts 13, 26, says, Men and brethren, children of the stock of Abraham, and whosoever among you feareth God, to you is the word of this salvation sent. To whom is the word of this salvation sent? To those who are God-fearing people, to those who fear God. According to Romans 3, man by nature has no fear of God before his eyes. So if we preach the gospel today, the only person who's going to respond to it is the person who's already been changed, who has a reverential respect for God implanted in his heart. And next time, the Lord willing, we will look at several ways that the gospel exercises in a positive way this transforming power in the lives of God's children.